Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Stella, and this is Backward to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 143 for July MMXVII. Backward to Oracle is brought to you by Punch Like a Girl. Hey there, my name is Nathaniel, and I'm here to tell you about an exciting new podcast. What are you doing? Oh, hey, Liz. I'm just recording the, the podcast promo. You're recording the promo for the Punch Like a Girl podcast? Yeah. You. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of the hosts. I have more podcast experience. What? You're going to sit there and mansplain to people about a podcast focusing on graphic novels and trade collections with female protagonists? Um, oh. Yeah. Can I at least tell them how it's available on iTunes and Stitcher and at punchlikeagirlpod.wordpress.com? No. Shoot. All right, well, hang on. I'll delete this. We'll try again. That's not delete. That's the button for publish. Backroll the Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. 
Batgirl the Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts. Hashtag TBU family. Support TBU and subscribe to the show on Patreon by going to thebatmanuniverse.net. And if you become a $25 or more subscriber on Patreon between July 1st and 31st, you will be entered to win a Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast t-shirt. So be sure to do that for July only. Well, I did want to at least mention that there is a really special omnibus coming out in December and it's Batgirl in the Bronze Age and it's going to be collecting well it's going to be collecting a lot but uh, it's starting with her of course first appearance in 359 it's got 363 369 it's basically all the things that I've covered here and then it has a lot of Batman families as well so it literally is the late 1960s and then the 1970s so I feel like there's some silver age in there but mostly it's the bronze age comes out December 20th and the retail value is 99.99 as most omnibus are. Uh, So definitely check that out if you're looking to purchase something that's a great investment, though you know half of it you're going to have some weird (laughs) stories and then the the back half I guess you're going to have some some fun stories there. I'm not sure if I'm going to get this yet. I actually have the majority of these in, you know, single issue, especially with the Batman family, so I'm not sure if I'm going to shell out $100, but you know, I do have the the showcase, and it would be nice to have it in color. But so I'll consider this. Maybe I'll put it on a Christmas list or something. And who knows if someone's going to shell out money for me in that manner? Well, hello and welcome. This is July. So you know that the next time I come and talk to you, it'll probably be about San Diego Comic-Con. Unless, of course, knock on wood, I have a terrible time. I just don't want to remember it. But hopefully you can look forward to some fun and engaging and interesting interviews from various people. Uh, A goal, just goal that I have going into San Diego Comic-Con is just to talk to Shauna and Julie Benson because they were the two that I missed out on last time and then... I haven't been able to to get an interview with them yet, so I'm hoping above all that I get to talk to them. And just in general, uh, you know, getting to fun panels or fun roundtables and things like that, maybe looking in on Supergirl or Flash or Arrow or, or something like that. So we shall see, and, and hopefully seeing some of those world premieres like Batman and Harley, which looks like it could be fun, and I think there's a Lego DC Superhero Girls film that's also also premiering so hopefully uh, you'll get to hear from those voice actors i'm actually just coming off of broadway again i got to see anastasia which when i found out it was coming to broadway i got so excited it's just uh, a film you know from the 90s 96 i think it is that i absolutely loved when it came out one of my favorite songs i think of all animated films journey to the past and i just really want to see this on broadway and so i got to see it row e so about five in uh you know i i don't do anything small when i go there and just oh so good uh all the actors you know especially chrissy altamere who played 
Anastasia were, were so amazing. She was so in tuned with, with the emotions and everything. It was beautiful. The set designs, the costumes, and the changes and everything is amazing. And teared up a little bit when the grandmother and As- Anastasia are, are reunited for real. And just oh, so amazing. And Ramin Karimlu, who played Phantom at one point, such a beautiful voice. And uh, got his signature on the playbill. Sadly, didn't get to Dimitri or Anastasia, but it was, he, he seems like a great guy and, uh, oh, I I have a bit of a crush on him now, I'm afraid. (laughs) So, oh man. So I just can't recommend enough just going up to Broadway and seeing any show because I think there's just so much to to get from any show that's up there and and I think they meet you where you are and again I recommend Dear Evan Hansen which I think is wonderful and and won Best Tony for Best Musical it won Best Actor for Ben Platt and it also won Best female featured actress in a musical Rachel Bay Jones and then tons of other things for I think uh the music and the book and everything so that that definitely deserved everything that it got so my recommendation is to certainly go up to New York and see a show or just you know a local show also support your local theater I'm about to see Pippin next week and uh, one of my former, well, actually a couple of my former students are in it, uh, either playing a part or in the band. And so I look forward to that. Uh, I know it's a bit scandalous, so I can't wait to see how some young adults put on Pippin, but I'm excited for that. So support local theater as well. And here we are. So... This is actually an interesting episode, mainly because of what I read. I guess I'll start off by saying that this is a good week or a good month. I think, I mean, I really enjoyed everything that I read, so I hope you enjoy listening about them. And I do actually do a review in the old half, so you can look forward to that. But in this particular month, in 97, it was January, DC Comics was having a crossover with all the annuals. And it's they featured DC superheroes in sort of a pulp fiction style stories with crime noir. And so it depends on, on what was going on, but there was certainly suspense in Detective. There was Tales of the Unexpected. There were Strange Adventures. And you had romance comics as well. So it was actually really interesting. The The inside in the story reflected, I think, what they were trying to get at with the film noir, as well as the cover was very special, just the way that they actually laid it out and, and the way that it looked. So I this was actually a very intriguing idea when I first pulled both of these annuals up that I'm going to be talking about. So I recommend checking this out in, in 97 and seeing what this was. So the first one I'm just going to talk about, not really review, and it was Detective Comics Annual Number 10, Warrior Breed. And the, I guess the category was Greatest Adventures. That was the, the pulp title. It had writer Chuck Dixon, Pensworth Sal Buscema, inker Klaus Jansen, and colorist Noel Giddings. Lucius Fox and his associate Karen Abrams are kidnapped in the hostile city Hasagura. 
Two terrorists demanding a ransom from Wayne Corp. Batman goes alone to save him, but unfortunately, gung-ho Buzz Westlake of Wayne Corp's security disobeys Bruce Wayne's orders to pay the ransom and puts the mission in jeopardy. So where Oracle pops up here is that she helps to find Lucius by using a defense satellite, redirecting it to take some heat signature close-ups of the area. And Batman is kind of funny. He wonders how much that's going to cost the taxpayers, and she tells him to underbid on Wayne Tech's next government contract if it's going to ease his conscience. And then she continues helping out on the mission, but mostly talking with Tim, which I think is sort of the status quo, I think, of where Oracle is currently in the in the Batman scheme. I think she prefers to talk to Tim over Batman. But then we're going to get into Nightwing Annual 1. And this, I'm actually going to do a full review because, number one, it had the pulp title of Young Romance. So, of course, yes, let's do it. And number two, there's actually some major shipping in here. And I'm not just talking about Dick Grayson and the Black Widow, but Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon as well. So this is Nightwing Annual number one, Forever Hold Your Peace. Writer Devin Grayson, penciler Greg Land, inker Bob McLeod, and colorist Roberta Tews. Chapter 1, Boy Gets Girl. Nightwing is fighting some crooks on the dock while worrying about being late, then jumps into the water to follow a boat and worries about being wet. He comes up with various excuses and finally makes it to Wayne Manor where a young woman comes up with her own excuse. Wait, what? Dick Grayson's getting married? Titans crash the wedding, Arsenal, Flash, Tempest, Donna Troy, as well as Leanne Harper and Linda Park. And unlike the Bat family, the Titans don't know that this is actually a job. Dick encounters what seems to be a string of Black Widow killings, a young woman whose husband keeps mysteriously dying. We see their whirlwind romance and quick engagement there as in Dick and this young lady. After the wedding, Donna talks to Dick and is concerned about him. He tells her not to worry and gives her the wedding certificate to destroy. Chapter 2, Boy Meets Girl. Nightwing is in a phone booth on the phone with his new wife while at the same time beating on bad guys. Apparently, Dick and Emily, his young bride, have yet to spend a night together. Once home, Emily says they need to see a marriage counselor, which goodness gracious you know we're like two days out dick is able to put the blame on himself bringing up his dead parents and saying that he is afraid if he loves her too much she will go away too the whole conversation leads dick to believe that she didn't kill her husband Z plural babs finds a mysterious prescription which could prove that she did he goes to a junkyard in order to investigate the car that killed one of her previous husbands and encounters more crooks later dick takes emily's son dennis to the circus where he gets a thought that it might be emily's bff annalise that has killed the husbands annalise's father was framed for some corporate espionage by emily's father Chapter 3, Girl Loses Boy. Nightwing gets attacked by some thugs in an alley who were sent by someone. Then he is met by Batman and Robin, who are checking up on Dick for Alfred. At least that's what they say. Dick and Tim spar, and we find out again that Dick is not sleeping with his wife. Dick and Emily go on their honeymoon via Oracle Travel, who also sets them up with two single rooms. Once at Waikiki, Dick happens upon Annalise, who apparently also visited Emily and her previous husband in Greece. The three go diving together, and Dick knows that his oxygen tank is poisoned with CO2, but goes with it. He gets a new tank, but Annalise threatens Emily with a knife. This is all happening underwater. Dick and Emily both drop their tanks, and Annalise tries to swim to the surface before Dick stops her. 
As Annalise is taken away by the police, Dick explains to Emily what he was doing, but offers to stay with her even though they aren't legally married. She knows that he is not in love with her, and she knows that he has other secrets, so she walks away and gives him back the ring. Well, young romance and film noir indeed. It starts out like a normal Nightwing issue, but then it takes a turn with the marriage, which of course I think is meant to shock the readers. The appearance of the Titans as well as the constant jokes about ministers being destroyed, a la Titans number 100. I guess, you know, they can't let the the joke lie. So I did text Tom and say how many ministers were killed, but it was just that one. But I guess it's pretty unforgettable once you do it once. Dick also comes up with one excuse about being late to the wedding that reflects back to kissing Corey so she could gain the language, which I don't know if I would have been in the know had I not known Tom and, you know, him always trying to force Corey upon me. The looks on the faces of the Bat family is rather interesting. Alfred is concerned. Bruce probably couldn't care less. And Barbara Gordon is clearly upset. She is not liking this, even though she knows that it's a farce. So, shipper moment number one. Dick didn't like the Titans seeing the ceremony because he knew they wouldn't understand. And he's most concerned about Donna. I think probably because of what happened to her and and Terry and all that stuff. And he's also concerned about Babs, even though she already knew he didn't want her to see it. So can we count that as a shipper moment number two, that he has these concerns for Barbara seeing this fake wedding? Bruce happens to be the one who comes up with the idea of seducing Emily, which I find amusing, and I don't know why, actually. But it does seem super random that Emily falls for Dick so quickly, especially since we know it was real for her. And I feel like, well, let me read some of this. We could go with what Barbara Gordon says. After the proposal, he leaves and says that, he had some sort of meeting with Japan and there's a time difference and he's back with Oracle and Oracle says time difference. She bought the time difference and he says it usually works once or twice. I just can't believe she said yes. And then this is what Barbara says. Yeah. Women's got no taste, obviously. Imagine agreeing to marry the brightest, sweetest, most handsome, wealthiest young bachelor on the East Coast. Definite nutcase. And then he says, with a smirk, I mean, she's like, her eyes are closed, head sort of turned away. He says, Barbara, I didn't know you cared. And then they're both looking at each other. There's silence. Then she turns away. He turns away. Still silence. And then the awkward so to break it. So that's definitely a shipper moment number three for me. Whew. So definitely some romantic tension right there. There are some hijinks throughout the issue, which I, I find amusing, like Nightwing in a phone booth while fighting off some bad guys, sleeping on the couch, the awkward marriage talk. It it reads like, I, I don't know. Basically, this would be developed into a probably a funny sitcom, but also it's pretty serious because, you know, the woman at the end gets her heart broken. There is, however, some really weird narration on page 23. And this is with the marriage counseling, which I think is weird anyway. I mean... There's clearly a problem if you're like two to three days out, maybe a week at most, and you, well, you've not consummated the marriage is an issue, as well as in talks of having some sort of counselor. 
So he says it's him, which I guess works sometimes. And he says that ever since his parents died, he's been a major insomniac. And he's not used to sharing in this manner. And then he says the whole thing of, I'm afraid if I love you too much, you'll go away, dot, 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 question mark. But what's weird is something that I don't understand is then we have two narration boxes that says, how could he have told me what to say? He doesn't know himself, does he? And I I don't know who, the idea is that it's probably him talking, but I have no idea what he's talking about. How could he have told me what to say? Does that, was Batman giving him things. He doesn't know himself, does he? I'm not sure. I mean, as far as I can tell, he might be talking about Batman, but why was Bruce giving him cues or lines of what to say? So that panel, I mean, it's one panel out of, you know, a whole story, but I just don't understand it at all, really. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, if anyone has any any thoughts on those particular boxes, please let me know. I like how Babs is his point person, but Gee, what an awkward position she's in. It seems like it's actually really painful for her, and maybe even for him. And and the flirtations, I think, continue. She at one point says, Dick, you know, you're a married man now. Uh, So there's more joking, but I think, as with all jokes, there's some truth that is beneath the, the actual joke. I like the appearance of Batman and Robin as Nightwing is working, but it repeats the fact that Dick has not consummated the marriage. We were already clear from the phone conversation, but we were told again, and it seems like it's really important to the writer, Devin Grayson, that Dick is not sleeping with this woman and using her physically, because I think, because we know that his feelings aren't in it, and this is a job that it probably would be, well, it would be very bad, right, when you think about this, because he'd just be using her, a la James Bond, I guess. But I think it would just have a bad, leave a bad taste in, in the reader's mouth, especially because, you know, people really like Dick Grayson. And while he does sleep around, I think he only sleeps with people that he cares with. So this would be really weird and bad. I love that Oracle Travels booked two singles, and even Dick Grayson says that he appreciated that. It's super awkward that a BFF would show up on a honeymoon and that she was invited to do so with the one in Greece. Now, my best friend just got married, and I was the maid of honor, and I wouldn't even consider doing that. Now, I did text her, and I said, what would you think about this? And, you know, I told her, be blunt, this is for research, and she said I would find it funny, and I thought, oh, that was not what I was expecting. But she said, said, you know, it would be one thing to hang out with us like one day by the pool. But if you were following us around, then it would be weird. I'm like, okay, you know, that's what I was thinking here. The scuba scene is at times confusing. I can't exactly tell what's going on, even though there is narration. Just the tanks and the motions are a bit odd. You can overall understand what's happening, but there are just a few times that you're like, what's, uh, does he have his own rebreather? Where's this tank going? I don't, just some weird things. I'm also confused why Dick wants to stay with Emily, unless it's just guilt. It's not like they have a child together, and yet he's saying, well, they do have Dennis there. But yeah, you, I never really thought about that until just now, the fact that you re- you sort of broke a couple people's hearts, right? Because you've got that kid involved. But anyways, he's saying that they could make it work, and I think you do feel sorry for Emily, but I'm glad that she walked away. I think she needed to do that. So overall, this was an interesting Black Widow mystery with classic Nightwing side quests and, of course, shipping, not just with Emily. That that wasn't, I, not just, 
I don't even care about that. But with Barbara Gordon, I think there are some major things going on. So I'm going to give this an 8 out of 10 wedding rings. It was a good annual. Next up and finally is two, or are, two out of three Azriels. I didn't have the third, sadly, and I regret that because the first two are really good. So Azriel 36, Azriel and Bane, part one, if he screws up this time. Writer Dennis O'Neill, pencil Roger Robinson, anchor James Pascoe, and colors Demetrius Basukos. December 97 is the cover date. Word reaches Batman that Bane has resurfaced. Although reluctant to do so, Batman gives Ezreal his blessing to try to stop Bane. Eager to please Batman, Jean-Paul finds himself conflicted when Sister Lily, oh, that woman, also asks him for his help. In the end, however, he decides to forget about Bane and go with Lily to Mexico. Azriel number 37, Angel and Bane Part 2, Battle with the Bird, same credits. This is now January 98. Bane sets his plans in motion and frees his henchman, the deadly bird. In the last minute, Azriel decides against going with Lily to Mexico and goes after Bane instead. With Azriel hot on his trail, Bane formulates his new and improved Venom formula. With Bird as his guinea pig, Bane sicks him on Azriel, who, after a vicious battle, defeats the drug-enhanced villain. Bruised and battered, the hero and Nomaz are no match for the calculating and powerful Bane. Well, here we have Oracle trying to make contact with Azrael to help set up the mission. She has trouble doing this because, of course, Azrael's with Lily at the point. At that point, later, once Azrael's actually on the mission, Oracle gives him details of Bane's whereabouts, but she also tells him that he doesn't have to go and he could just walk away from Bane. And she calls him my friend, and I think that's really heartfelt from her. And she's just not only an aide for him, but someone who cares about him. Now. Like I said, only two of the three parts. I didn't have part three. Also, Oracle doesn't appear in part three, so I didn't read it. But this is probably some of the best Ezreal stuff that I have read. We have really emotional interactions between Ezreal and Batman, where Ezreal is just like, why can't I do anything right with you? Which sort of reflects sometimes, I think, some of the Robins, right? And we also see Ezreal's doubts and desires just to live up to that name. I think it it was a really well-rounded story, and I'm sorry I don't have the third part, but, you know, there are people over at the Batman universe that don't like Ezreal in Detective Comics and wonder why he's around and why he's so popular. And I think these two issues, and I'll assume that the third of this part is a reason why. So if you're wondering what's up with Azrael, I really suggest looking up 36, 37, 38. I mean, as long as you have sort of a nightfall background, because it does reflect on that. But this is some really good stuff. So I definitely suggest checking those out. And those are the reviews. So see, I did actually do a review as well as talk about a couple other ones. Well, next up is listener email. Mail time! Here's the mail, it never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. We have, or I have, a couple website comments. The first one is from, or on, episode 140 from Ian Miller. So much detective comics. While I do like getting the education on Babs, it comes with your admirable dedication to thoroughness. I do admit I'm eager to hear the next Vintage Birds of Prey review. Also, have you ever considered publishing your massive spreadsheet of Babs or making some kind of timeline for longtime fans and newcomers to follow along with you? I have my own massive spreadsheet of Steph Winky Emoji. 
I thought the Blackbird arc was a bit less successful because the middle issue was frustrating and only featuring one of the birds. I really crave team interaction with this book, but I did like the conclusion. I also agree with you on the Son of Penguin finale. It just feels like there are too many elements that aren't coming together, but I think the art, despite some coloring that's a bit lackluster compared to Alan Pasolacqua's stunning work on the current Birds of Prey title, is really stand out on the solo Batgirl title. Thanks, Ian. Yes, uh, I know. There's so much. And the recap, so sorry. I'm trying to get through them really quickly, which is why I try to do a handful of them. And I'm getting close to getting back to The Birds of Prey, the classic, I guess I should call it. I should publish this spreadsheet. I guess I'm just worried because, you know, sometimes I come upon something new and then or I switch it around. So I don't want it to be I don't want people to follow it too closely because then they'll be confused if I skip around like I did all of those tie ins. What were those called? My anniversary special, I did all of those solo uh, female titles like the Ravens and things like that. So I might skip around. I'm trying to keep, you know, and in sequential order here but let's see here i just did some i'm I'm getting close i am getting close actually so maybe next one we will uh we'll see it i'm not sure but what's going to happen is there's going to be it's probably going to get to the point of every other episode is going to be a birds of prey because we've got Birds of Prey coming up very soon. So it might be next issue, I don't know, or episode. And then we have some Justice League, JLA. So that's that's a lot of, uh, she appears a lot quite often in there. But once we get to the actual, because I think I have two tie-ins left with Birds of Prey, I think after that, and after I get through a little bit, I mean, in 99 is when Birds of Prey number one comes out. So then probably consistently I'm going to be covering that. So just be patient. They'll be coming out and maybe I'll publish this. I'll I'll try to figure out some way to do that. As for uh, the Blackbird arc, I, I feel like I enjoyed it more than, well, you know, the, the, the first arc that we had, mainly because it seemed like there was less filler with it and it moved at a faster clip. And I totally agree with you. The fact that the team interaction, I think, is what we really want because it is birds of prey. But I do like when we sometimes focus on specific members because I feel like it was Dinah's turn anyways because Helena was really, even though it was, you know, an Oracle arc or so-called, it was really a Helena-focused arc. So I think that Dinah deserved it and it was one issue compared to Helena's however many. So I'll go with that. And as for your comments about the art, I totally agree. I'm really liking Chris Wild Goose's art. Uh, I think he really has captured, I mean, he's using his own style, but then we also have, I think, some some Burnside flavor in there as well, and, and I'm, I've been enjoying it. Next comment is on episode 141, which was my interview with Carolyn Coca, and it's from The Irredeemable shag 
Wow, really great interview with Carolyn. Such a powerful and relevant discussion. Her book sounds fascinating. As your resident lecherous male guest host, and act as Stella Controlia test, this discussion led me to one item I felt wasn't discussed. Lots of time was given to the topic of the dominant multimedia roles going to male, heterosexual, white, non-disabled heroes. When you discuss female-led TV and movies, the list included Wonder Woman, Captain Marvel, Batgirl, Supergirl, and Jessica Jones. Seems to me only one of those criteria is different with these characters, switch male for female. All of those female characters are still heterosexual, white, and non-disabled, assuming we get Batgirl and not Oracle. So my question is, is Hollywood still not taking it far enough, and what will it take to get us there? Thanks again for a great episode. So I reached out to Carolyn to answer this, and this was her response. She says, Hi, Stella and Shag. Yes, those five female starring properties are it. Only 6% of the 25 TV shows and 60 movies out or in development. And yes, all of those are white and non-disabled and have similar bodies. Most are heterosexual. Wonder Woman isn't, but is usually portrayed as such. The creative teams behind these properties, as in comics, are mostly white, non-disabled, heterosexual, and male. These five characters are different from one another in terms of background and personality and powers, so that's good, but it's not enough. We need more varied representations of heroes, and the best way to do that is to have more of a range of voices behind the camera. What many cite as the best scene of the Wonder Woman movie, when she crosses no man's land, was a scene that director Patty Jenkins had to fight for because not one male around her saw the point of it. Rarely in Hollywood are women and people of color even in the room when decisions are being made. They're not the ones who get the call to write or produce or direct, and lots of movies following the old formulas and stereotypes fail every year. This has to change. This system has to open up and incorporate new ideas and different perspectives from a more diverse set of creators. Best Carolyn. So I figured going to the actual fount of knowledge would be best instead of answering there. I think it's, me personally, it's, I don't know if we can hit all those things at once. I think we've got to do it gradually because otherwise there's probably going to be some sort of outcry. I think there always is. So I feel like we're going, you know, making a step in the right direction that we've got more female characters, but now we need to to branch off and, and create, you know, more varied female characters, which I think is, is what you're getting at. And I feel like I go back to this a lot. I I think I mentioned this a lot in my minority report episode that Orange is the New Black is a really well-rounded show. And the fact that there are so many different types of characters and, you know, they're all female, but there are just so many different types of them, uh, whether color, religion, there are certainly disabled people there or, you know, just different belief systems or backgrounds. And I think, you know, if we could take that and put it in all of media, we would have something. Uh, I should have mentioned uh, sexuality and orientation and uh, gender identification as well with that. So it's it's almost like that's the 
the micro and we need to make it macro and and how can we do that and uh, you know I want to see it all at once but I think gradually is the best way to go just so that we don't you know people are more accepting of it and there's not outcry and then we have to take several steps back right because if you're gradual I think then people are more accepting they can keep pushing forward but if you make a huge leap and there are issues then you're you're falling back and I think we got to be careful with that at least that's my opinion but Uh, Thank you for writing in. Thank you to Carolyn for writing in (laughs) to answer that because I felt like she was the best person to do that. And please, please, please go pick up her book, Superwomen, Gender, Power, and Representation. And I'm not just saying it because I had an interview with her or I'm listed in the, the bibliography, but it really is an amazing book. It was so interesting and engaging. I really enjoyed it. So there you go. That is it for my listener feedback. Again, you can write into me at backroloracle at gmail.com or you can post on Facebook. I see those as well. And of course, you can post on the actual website and the episode and everything. Well, I'm going to take a break, but when I come back, I'm going to review Batgirl and the Birds of Prey number 11 and Batgirl 64 slash 12. But first, Zias' radio hour featuring Lost on You by LP. Oh, 
and we're back. Uh, shout out to Jacob for recommending that, though I <laughs> I will say I'd heard it before he did, but he said you should really play that on Zias's Radio Hour, and so there you go. So recommended by Jacob. Well, now I've got these two new reviews, and the positivity continues. So first up, background the Birds of Prey number eleven, source code part one, miscalculation. Writers Julie Benson and Shauna Benson, artist Rohe Antonio, and colorist Alan Pasalacqua and John Rauch. The issue opens with Huntress and Black Canary holding Gus out of the broken clock tower window, and Backrow explaining that she's been keeping an eye on him since the beginning by planting a backdoor ghost code on a system that allowed her to check any incoming and outgoing messages. When Gus said someone wanted to meet them, she knew it was a trap and that it was finally time for some answers. Gus explains again his origin story starting from taking on the moniker of Oracle, but fills in the gaps and explains that someone came to his room one night, giving him a chance to either come work for him or be framed for his crimes. That someone was Noah Cutler, a.k.a. Calculator. Batgirl fills Huntress in on her and Canary's history with Calculator and even brings the death of Oracle into rebirth continuity. Yes, that amazing story. Gus explains that he never revealed that Barbara Gordon was Oracle. He also says that Cutler was a family man and ran a caring business and cared for his employees. Hey, even if that business sold Intel to Crooks. After a trial run, Cutler told Gus he was good enough to run his own ops. And this is where we first saw him in issue number one. And he explains that he left those breadcrumbs for Batgirl on purpose. He paid off his mom's house with the dirty money and left to find his own place to live because he couldn't stand lying to his mother anymore. Batgirl confronts him about still lying, and in particular about those pills. And this is where we learn that Gus is bipolar and that those pills are his medication. The birds become sympathetic and hope to end Calculator's hold over him tonight. The birds lie in wait as Batgirl has a meeting with Cutler, who explains that his wife and child have been kidnapped by a company which was robbed by one of his clients. He needs the birds' help because he can't go to the police. The birds will help on the condition that he leaves Gus alone and never contacts them again. They'll start with his client, who, guess what, turns out to be Catwoman. Hmm. Next up, the cat's out of the bag. Calculator! See, I told you. Now, it may have been wrong. I, I was a wrong guess in the beginning. But, technically, I was right because it, it all came back to Calculator. And I think it all will because he is the arch nemesis of Oracle, I would say, of Oracle. I think the arch nemesis of Batgirl has to be Killer Moth, but that's because, you know, I love Killer Moth. Something fierce. I like that Babs was always keeping an eye on him and only pretended to trust him. That is the character that I know. And so I apologize to this imaginary character for the bad things I said about her in the first arc. So now the death of Oracle is back in continuity. I didn't really care for the story. I think it's controversial in the fact that some people knew and some people didn't, and especially Misfit. I don't have a fondness for her. She knew, but Cassandra Kane, for whom I do have a fondness, did not know. So it's very bizarre. But this is still weird because Huntress was actually there and she has no recollection of it. So then you sort of see the tension that Rebirth continues to have of New 52 continuity versus pre-Flashpoint continuity. The bipolar revelation 
So this was interesting because as I was reading, I knew right away, I was thinking, yeah, I know what they're doing here. The fact that we're seeing Oracle again, and we think of Oracle, I think, not only because of just how powerful she is and intelligent, but that she was disabled. And so here we have another oracle, and again we have a disability, but just a different form. And I like that it wasn't randomly put in there. This was really built up, right? I mean, in the beginning, I was asking the question of, what are these pills? Why are we focusing on these pills? I I thought maybe he had AIDS, but he didn't. It was not an AZT break, as I thought from rent. But here we go. So this was nice. Like I said, it wasn't random. I hate when things just pop up and you're like, oh. But here you can go back and see the little breadcrumbs there. However, being bipolar doesn't exactly excuse what Gus was doing. So the about face from the birds is a little too quick for me. I I think you can be supportive, obviously. It's not like he's a different person. It's just there's something more about him. But he was doing pretty shady stuff. And I I, I think that those things cannot be excused. So I do have a, a problem with that. I thought it was funny slash strange that Gus's fantasy about going to jail involves Muppets. Like, there are just Muppet people in there, and he's a Muppet, the policeman's a Muppet, his mom's a real person, and then his bunkmate was a Muppet. It was very bizarre. As we are seeing the heist and the diamonds in this issue, you know, I was thinking it might be Catwoman, and hey, it actually is. Though I do question why she would answer the door in her costume and also hold a diamond. Uh, Seems sloppy and overconfident even with her. I don't necessarily trust what's happening with Calculator. Seems like he would never be sloppy enough to be traced. And even he admits that as well. So either he has something else going on or perhaps Gus did something. Which again is not on the up and up. Because he didn't send the info to the police but to the company. Which of course would have dire consequences. Which like the cop remember that got seriously injured slash died in the first arc. I'm going to give this an 8.5 out of 10 birds. Bit of an info dump issue if you think about it because of all the Gus stuff, but it does bring a major figure back into the fold and it sets up Catwoman, which could be interesting. However, if you tune into the Batman Universe comic podcast, you know that we're having issues with what's going on in Batman between Batman and Catwoman and what's going on in Detective between Batman and Zatanna and how these two align. What's the continuity here? So this would be another question of how does Catwoman's place in this title exactly interact with what Catwoman's doing over in Batman. So I guess we'll see. Maybe Batman will pop up. I don't know. Now on to Batgirl 64 slash 12, Troubled Waters. Writer Hope Larson, pencils and inks, Eleanor Carlini, colorist Chris Peter. The Burnside Y. Caleb P., the ghostess with the mostest, is investigating a series of hauntings in the pool and interviews Batgirl, who happens to be there to help, though believes there is some scientific explanation for what has been going on. It seems that during the senior water aerobics and infant swim, a strange pink energy appeared in the water. Since then, they have closed the pool. The TV team, with Batgirl and the manager, go to the pool to investigate. Batgirl takes a water sample to test, and Kayla just jumps right into the water, but nothing happens. At the Burnside College Department of engineering. Batgirl visits long-lost Kadir, hello again, and asks him to analyze the water. 
he can't, but he has a crush on someone who can. Annalyn Koo says there is nothing strange about the water, but Batgirl could talk to physicist Professor Raiden. Batgirl has heard of Raiden, but goes, ugh, it reminds me of the Mortal Kombat guy. Enough! but goes to do more research on him at the Burnside College Science Library. During her research, she sees that he took on a mentoree, and it is the same person in the missing persons photo at the Y, Liana Soto. She was working with Raiden on hydrodynamic teleportation, and it seems that it was her research first. Later, back at the Y, Batgirl has gathered a group of people in the pool, since she believes Liana needs the electrical energy of a group of people in order to return. After some awkward silence, the peak energy appears, but his it's Batgirl. Kayla tells her that ghosts can't see, so Batgirl throws Kayla's camera in the pool. Leanna rematerializes and explains that Raiden wanted to steal her research and so threw her into the teleportation machine. Kayla frets over her lost camera which I guess is inside of Leanna now. One week later, Leanna is working at Gordon Queen Energy before finishing her PhD and Raiden is behind bars. Frankie asks if it would be unethical to hack the camera in her head, and Babs wonders what she means. Next, Catwoman in Burnside. Well, 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 maybe there's a connection between those two. You see, it can be done. An issue that doesn't involve Barbara Gordon's romantic life. This felt like a classic Babs as detective story, and it's easy to follow with fun side characters. Now, Martin Gray on Twitter made a good point that Becquerel looking into the camera with all the details of her face as well as the earrings makes you wonder how no one can put the pieces together. I've been asking myself that for a while, but in particular with her father because they've been six inches away from each other, maybe a foot, and he doesn't recognize her. I think he's being woefully ignorant. It makes sense that Batgirl is skeptical of the supernatural and wants to rely on the science, but at the same time, it doesn't, since, well, look at all of the weird stuff she's gone up against. Kayla reminds me of Abby from NCIS. She even has a skeleton bathing suit, which seems like something Abby would have, and she just, whoo, jumps right in. Kadir reappears, but it looks like he's not crushing on Batgirl anymore. I like how he and Annalyn geek out over science, but I don't like how Batgirl only seeks him out when she needs something. That's not really a good friend. I can follow all the science here. It doesn't seem like there is any leap, and all is explained rather well. The only weird thing probably is throwing the camera into the pool and that making it possible for <laughs> Leanna, the ghost, to see, and then who knows where the camera is. Is it really in her brain, as Frankie suggests? Who knows? That's the only weird thing. I do wonder from where Batgirl gathered all these people. I see Kadir and Annalyn, and perhaps the others are friends of Leanna, but how did she contact them? Did she put some sort of Facebook post that, hey, we're all gathering at the Y to conduct a seance in the pool. Bring your, bring your swimmies and your noodles. I like the connection to Gordon Queen Energy and Frankie talking about hacking the computer in Leanna, which makes me wonder if something will happen with that or if this really is the one and only time we're going to hear from Leanna. But it seems like something Frankie would be interested in since think about Barbara Gordon and, and what was going on with her mind. Listeners, friends, readers, this is the best issue that I've read from Larson's run Hope Larson, if you keep doing this, you will be fine. 
So, you know, she doesn't need to be romantically entangled with anyone. Just have that classic Barbara Gordon feel. This is it. There is humor. There is investigation and detectiving. We brought back some classic characters. We had a good cast there. 9.5 out of 10 bats. Please keep doing this. Barbara, well, especially Batgirl, also appeared in Supergirl number 10, where she's helping Supergirl out. So you can obviously check that out, which connects back to the annual again and Supergirl 9. But now on to, or over to, Chris for his Batman 66 slash 77 review. Uh, that's like losing your childhood hero, but knowing that the legend will live on forever. Thank you very much, Stella. Hello, Batmans. Welcome once again to the Batman 66 review segment. Thank you very much for downloading. And as always, thank you for not fast forwarding. I'm Chris, and I'm very glad to be with you. As you no doubt have heard by now, since the last podcast came the news of the passing of Adam West at age 88 due to complications from leukemia. I'm not sure when West's last public appearance was. I know he canceled an appearance this past April in the Chicagoland area where he was to appear with Burt Ward and Lee Merriweather, and subsequently none of the three showed. And I couldn't help but speculate if this was due to an illness, and if so, how severe. I can't think of anyone else cast other than West in the 60s Batman TV show, and it's hard for me to even speculate what other any other actor would have brought to the role. Yes, the 60s Batman show relied on an entire creative team of producers, directors, writers, and other actors to make it the instant hit that it was. But it was Adam West in the title role. His contribution is immeasurable. I first saw the 60s Batman TV show as reruns in the 1970s. (laughs) There was a time when kids wanted to emulate their TV heroes. And I was no different. When I was a little boy, my hair was blonde and a bit curly. And I didn't see any other superheroes like that. Bruce Wayne's hair was dark in the comic books, and I wanted dark hair. But when I first saw that West, when I was six years old, and I saw that he didn't have black hair, I thought there was hope for me. From having my own little adventures in Batman play acting, to having playing Batman with my Mego figures, to getting interested in the character and the history of Batman, to using VHS tapes to recording the show, and subsequently being frustrated when scenes including window climb cameos were edited out of reruns, and to collecting comic books which led me to explore other heroes and other titles. If not for West, it's conceivable a lot of fans and comics professionals from yesteryear and today may not have been. And I would not be here on this podcast as well. I was fortunate to have met Adam West twice. Once at a Minneapolis car show in the 80s and at a book signing in Aurora, Illinois in the mid-90s. He exuded wit, humor, kindness, and charm on both occasions. For a couple of decades, Adam West was Batman. I felt for West in 1989 when fan loyalties and public perceptions seemed to be divided with those who were fans of the character. Some loved West, and others were ready to embrace a different Batman with a darker and more serious tone. At the time, I saw an interview which reunited West with some of the actors who were villains on the show. I sensed West didn't initially want the Batman role, seemingly contradicting what I thought. Cesar Romero didn't understand that a Batman movie was coming out that wasn't intended for children. It was very heartbreaking to hear. As someone who could see both sides of the coin, I was sad and crestfallen. I never understood why it had to be one or the other. Why couldn't they both coexist? Eventually, the pendulum started to swing back. Some who were fans as kids were now adult celebrities, and they cast Adam West in their own projects. West got a voice role on Batman the Animated Series in the classic episode The Grey Ghost, which was a very fitting tribute. I think it's safe to say that Adam West never retired while doing work on The Family Guy or voicing Batman in video projects. We were blessed that he continued to work until the end, and there have been fitting tributes after his passing. There are other podcasts you can find on the Batman universe which offered their own tributes. Jerry Green and I recorded one ourselves. It was a bit lengthy, 
and it's not on the usual Bat Books for Beginners feed, but rather as a Batman Universe special. Hope you find it and check it out. Before I move on, a moment of silence to remember the late Adam West. Thank you. Today, I'll review Batman 66 meets Wonder Woman 77, number 6, the final issue of the series. Issue number 6 was cover dated August 2017. The cover art was provided by Michael and Laura Allred, and it depicts some of our cast of characters in some 70s iconic poses. Catwoman evokes a pose from the popular selling Farrah Fawcett poster of the day. The image of Wonder Woman was drawn to resemble Linda Carter in costume, and it comes from a different poster from back in the time. From there, I'm not really sure who the others are. I don't know if Nightwing is in a Bruce Lee pose. Uh, Batman's in a mid-twirl, evoking something that could be from Dorothy Hamill. The image of Batman really captures Adam West, but I'm not sure if it's based off of anything. However, there is an image of Ra's al Ghul in a similar pose Burt Reynolds struck in a nude centerfold in an issue of Cosmopolitan back in 1972. So if anyone out there knows what these other issues, uh, images are a takeoff of, please contact me. I'm very curious. The contents of this comic book and hard copy were originally released in download format. The writers are Mark Andreco and Jeff Parker. The penciler was David Hahn. Carl Kessel was the anchor. And Mad Pencil did the colors. When we last left our heroes, Bruce Wayne was in the Batcave, confronted by Ra's al Ghul and his minions. And Wonder Woman, Nightwing, and Catwoman were confronted by Talia and her henchmen at Catwoman's discotheque. Bruce puts on dark glasses and turns on a very bright light. With Raish and his minions temporarily blinded, Bruce attacks with his fists flying. As he's getting the upper hand, the villains vanish in wisps of smoke. Simultaneously at the disco, as our heroes are getting the upper hand, Talia and her henchmen disappear in wisps of smoke. The group of Wonder Woman, Nightwing, and Catwoman then go to Arkham, which has a Lazarus pit underneath it. There, they are met by Batgirl, who pulls up on her cycle, and we now find out that she is now going by the name Batwoman. Before they all can enter... Batman arrives in a new version of the Batmobile, which looks like a Trans Am with some bat emblems on it. The group approaches, and they are soon confronted by the Riddler, Mr. Freeze, Clayface, Killer Croc, and the Cheetah. Another fight breaks out. Batman and then Wonder Woman break off from the fisticuffs to search for Raish and Talia. Batman finds a cavernous passage below and finds Talia and Roz, while the remaining heroes defeat the rogues. Wonder Woman finds Batman just in the nick of time to save Batman, who lost his grip after an attempt to dive to stop Raish from jumping into the pit. Raish's foot dislodges from his boot, and suddenly he gets immersed. When he exits, he, he reverts in age back to approximately ten years old. Outside, as snow starts to fall, both Talia and Raish are ready for transport to their appropriate location, and Wonder Woman asks Batman about forming a league. The end? No, according to the caption, the beginning! I think I was a bit generous on my score for the last issue. There were some things I did let slide, with some hopes they'd get rectified, and some questions I had from the previous issue I had hoped would get answered here. Yes, Bruce put on the cape and cowl back on, and he returned as Batman, but I think that was going to be a given. While I like that Barbara is now calling herself Batwoman from Batgirl, I had hoped for some revelation that the relationship with Nightwing had gone to the next level, certainly beyond the, the quips that they traded here. Same for the relationship between Catwoman and Batman. We're given that the Talia-Batman relationship won't develop. What they had was something that never seemed to get past the childhood attraction, and the feelings that they had for each other could never get past Talia's loyalty to her father. And perhaps, most of all, there was any no further any elaboration of the Batman-Joker confrontation, where Batman killed his longtime foe. And any sign of introspection other than just the depiction of self-imposed exile. 
I usually don't re- read other reviews of material I'm covering, so it won't influence my own opinions here. But I cheated and I did with issue 5 after my own review. And some reviewers out there were very put off by the fact that Batman killed, in any circumstance. And they have a valid point. Has any version of Batman taken a life? And out of all the Batman incarnations you have, the last one you'd suspect of killing someone would be the 66 version of the character. I am a bit more forgiving than those reviewers were. I presume it was done in a do-or-die situation. However, now that the series has ended, I had hoped for a bit more of a reveal or depiction of the circumstances. We didn't get one, and I think that was a slight bit of a cheat with uh, no elaboration that was given. And that's a shame, because I thought the writing had been exceptional up until this point. Issue number six essentially had three fight scenes and a quote, well, I thought they'd at least give us this much, unquote, conclusion. But no more. I had no qualms with the alt work. One of the panels I liked was where Han drew Bruce's face in the shadow, but it evoked a cowl over his face, and I thought that was very effective. Over on the TBU website, Jerry Green gave this four out of five stars. I'm giving Batman 66 meets Wonder Woman 77 number six, six and a half out of ten bats. The 70s illusions and references were nice. The artwork was better than decent, but I wanted a bit more resolve with the Batgirl Nightwing and Catwoman-Batman relationships, and a little bit more with what Batman did the previous years. This was a decent, but not necessarily a fulfilling conclusion. Overall, I would recommend the collected issues when it comes out in trade with some reservations. I know some Bat fans won't get past the fact that this version of Batman killed someone, even if it was the Joker. I thought the first four issues were excellent, but as with life, when you take something you love in memory of its time and of its place and move it into the future, you do find that you can't go home again. Okay, now as promised, I finally will answer the question of whether I preferred the first season World War II episodes of Wonder Woman or the season two and three episodes set in the then-present day. Despite the fact that I think Linda Carter herself said she preferred the then-current setting of the later seasons, perhaps to no one's surprise, I prefer the season one World War II episodes. Yes, some episodes were obviously cheesy, but I think those episodes had more action, and you had more chemistry with Steve Trevor and Wonder Woman, something you just didn't have in the latter seasons. Now, occasionally in those later seasons, Diana would be paired with a man during a mission, but none of the guest stars seemed to have any chemistry with her, unfortunately. The caliber of threats and villains were hit and miss, with more misses in the CBS episodes. I didn't care for Wonder Woman's more revealing costume in the later seasons, and I think it was Andy Mangles who wrote in the article for Amazing Heroes around 1986 that CBS may have well first stood for contrived, bland, and silly, and frankly, I can't top that. I don't think I have any comments from the last segment. I still would like to give a shout-out to the Sutherlands. Be sure to check out their podcast, Warlord World, it's Trucker Talk, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. Listeners, I am now on Twitter at BTO and BatBooks. And over there, you can find me tweeting about my weekend nightstand reads, old Batman comic book posts, and occasionally I'll put out a Saturday morning salute where I'll tweet a pic of an old TV listing from Saturday mornings of yore, among other things. Hope you like it, and I hope you give it a try if you're not already following. Hope you check it out. More so, please give it a follow. The handle is spelled B-T-O-A-N-D-B-A-T-B-O-O-K-S. That's B-T-O for Batgirl the Oracle and Batbooks, as in Batbooks for Beginners. That's the other podcast I can be found on. Batbooks for Beginners is the one I co-host with Jerry Green, and that's where we examine and review trade paperbacks and collective material of Batman or related characters. Please feel free to leave any comments for myself on this segment or for the podcast on the TB website, and please leave us a good review over on iTunes. If you'd like to lend your support to the Batman Universe website that has news, articles, editorials, and their fine family of podcasts, 
you can make a donation on Patreon or a one-time donation by PayPal by following the links on the Batman Universe website homepage. Thank you very much for your support. If you wish to contact me directly, I can be reached by email at bruce.wayne at gothamcity.us. And thank you for your support. What adventurous group will Batman and Robin team up with next? What villainous threat next awaits our heroes? Will these threats come from the present or the future? Or both? Don't fail to listen to the next podcast where the answers to these vital, vibrant, voracious, valuable, verbal, valid verses will be answered next time. Same Batstella feed, same Batstella site. Thanks, Chris. And now finally, I've got my literature recommendations. So you can tell that it is summer because I have four recommendations. There'd probably be more, but, uh, well, actually, I'm not going to recommend the Pushkin biography. Unless you're a fan of Pushkin, you can go check that out by uh, Pushkin, a biography by T.J. Binion. But here, let's see here. First, we have the Moon Knight Epic Collection, Volume 1. Discover the many faces of the Moon Knight. Mercenary, werewolf hunter, superhero, millionaire, playboy, cab driver, ghost. Moon Knight is many things to many people, with the multiple personalities to match. Follow the fist of Khonshu as he battles to find his place in the Marvel Universe in this collection of his earliest appearances. From his startling debut as a nemesis of Werewolf by Night to an unlikely stint with the Defenders. And it collects Werewolf by Night 32-33, Marvel Spotlight 28-29, Defenders 47-50, Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man. 22 through 23, Marvel 2 and 1, 52, Moon Knight 1 through 4, material from Hulk Magazine, issues 11 through 15, and 17 through 18 and 20, and material from Marvel Preview 21. Whew, lots of stuff. So first of all, shout out to Carolyn again, because I bought the Superwoman book for Donovan, because I thought I'd be right up his alley, and I got a free Amazon Kindle book when I this is what I chose because I have really been enjoying well now I guess it's over but the Jeff Lemire and Warren Ellis run on Moon Knight so I thought I'd see him from the beginning and uh, it was really enjoyable I would say that the first stuff was the first couple issues and things were a little slow but once you get into his cast and everything I think he has an interesting cast and here he doesn't even though Marlene jokes and calls him schizo it's not like current stuff where he really has trouble with I mean all those people are inside of him he literally takes on these different characters being a cab driver and the millionaire playboy and um just Mark of course so I uh, I recommend that if you're interested in Moon Knight. I think that Moon Knight would be an amazing character or person or whatever to have on Netflix. I think that would be really interesting. And you could either go the schizophrenic route or start out like this and then have that sort of what deconstruct into that, I guess. But really interesting stuff. I also read The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. First published in 1939, Steinbeck's Pulitzer Prize-winning epic of the Great Depression chronicles the Dust Bowl migration of the 1930s and tells the story of one Oklahoma farm family, the Jodes, driven from their homestead and forced to travel west to the promised land of California. I should put that in quotations because, whew, might have been, but... (laughs) They had some troubles. Out of their trials and their repeated collisions against the hard realities of an America divided into haves and have-nots, 
evolves a drama that is intensely human yet majestic in its scale and moral vision, elemental yet plain-spoken, tragic but ultimately stirring in its human dignity. A portrait of the conflict between the powerful and the powerless, of one man's fierce reaction to injustice and of one woman's stoic strength. The novel captures the horrors of the Great Depression and probes into the very nature of equality and justice in America. Oh, man. It was sad. You kind of watch people go, come and go, if you think about it. But it all starts out as a big group, and then slowly people are leaving. I don't want to spoil anything. But uh, it certainly wasn't a happy novel. And once they get over in California, boy, yeah, there certainly was some trouble. And also some bigotry, but in the way of, like, state bigotry. Their status, because the Californians just didn't like the people coming over there and called them Okies, but in a really derogatory way. So... Yes, I can see why that is a classic. It was really good, just sad. I also read The Story of My Life by Helen Keller. It was first published in 1903, and it is her autobiography detailing her early life up to being 22, and especially her experiences with Anne Sullivan. So that was great. And then finally, The House of Names by Colum Toy Bean. I have been acquainted with the smell of death. So begins Clytemnestra's tale of her own life in ancient Mycenae, the legendary Greek city from which her husband, King Agamemnon, left when he set sail with his army for Troy. Clytemnestra rules Mycenae now, along with her new lover, Aegisthus, and together they plot the bloody murder of Agamemnon on the day of his return after nine years at war. Judged, despised, cursed by gods, she has long since lost faith in. Clytemnestra reveals the tragic saga that led to these bloody actions, how her husband deceived her eldest daughter Iphigenia with a promise of marriage to Achilles, only to sacrifice her because that is what he was told would make the winds blow in his favor and take him to Troy. How she seduced and collaborated with the prisoner Aegisthus, who shared her bed in the dark and could kill, how Agamemnon came back with a lover himself, and how, which was Cassandra, and how Clytemnestra finally achieved her vengeance for his stunning betrayal, his quest for victory greater than his love for his child. In House of Names, Colum Toybin brings a modern sensibility and language to an ancient classic and gives this extraordinary character new life so that we not only believe Clytemnestra's thirst for revenge, but applaud it. He brilliantly inhabits the mind of one of Greek myth's most powerful villains to reveal the love, lust, and pain she feels. Told in four parts, this is a fiercely dramatic portrait of a murderess who will herself be murdered by her own son Orestes. It is Orestes' story too, his capture by the forces of his mother's lover Aegisthus, his escape and his exile, and it is the story of the vengeful Electra who watches over her mother and Aegisthus with cold anger and slow calculation until, on the return of her brother, she has the fates of both them in her hands. Well, if you're a fan of the Iliad or just Greek mythology or Greek tragedy, you know, Aeschylus and all of that stuff, I would recommend picking this up. I heard it on NPR and thought, oh, that, that, that'll be really interesting. And so I read it at the beach, which was lots of fun. And yeah, the point of view's changed between Clytemnestra, Electra, and Orestes. And uh, it was just really engaging. I was going to say fun, but uh, maybe that's not really the right description. So I recommend all, what are those, four books? Yeah, comics, of course, and then three regular books. So there you go. 
Well, remember, you can send any questions or comments to BackRollTheOracle at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at BackRollTheOracle. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. Support the Batman Universe by subscribing to Patreon. And remember, if you subscribe at the $25 or more level just for the month of July, you will be entered to win a Backroll to Oracle t-shirt. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. And until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you? <laughs>